I invite you to take your copy of the Holy Scripture and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Genesis, Genesis 18, once again, as was read just a moment ago, Genesis 18. Many people like to read books and watch movies that might be classified as apocalyptic. That is, they detect the ultimate decimation of people in cities by natural or supernatural causes. Perhaps it's tidal waves that sweep over entire cities or perhaps meteor strikes that obliterate entire cities or or continents. Maybe it's an extraterrestrial alien invasion that marks the end of the world. And we call that entertainment today. However, the original apocalyptic literature was not the work of fiction. Rather, it was the prophetic word of God when God warned sinful man of his pending judgments. And so while we might find the portrayal of mass destruction on earth to be entertaining, I I ask a question for us there at the top of your notes. It is the question that's posed here also on the screen. How should the man or woman of God respond to the threat of God's righteous judgments? For example, when Jonah was told of the pending judgment of God upon the city of Nineveh, he was glad because Nineveh was a wicked city and deserved God's judgments. And maybe we feel that way about some place or some people group. On the other hand, if you think of Jesus who foresaw the apocalyptic consequence of uh, that, that Jerusalem would suffer by rejecting him as the Messiah, he wept over the city of Jerusalem and he wanted to, to gather her as a hen gathers her chicks for safety. And I hope that we would feel that way about the lost around us. But then there's Genesis 18 when Abraham learned of God's intent to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by raining down fire and brimstone on those wicked cities. Abraham prayed. And he prayed and pled for God's mercy to spare those cities for the sake of the righteous who lived there. And our biography of Abraham leads us now to Genesis 18 where Abraham responded to the righteous judgment of God with a prayer of faith. Abraham and the prayer of faith. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we study his holy word. God, we thank you so much for the the opportunity and the great privilege to gather together here as your people to sing and worship to you. We thank you, Lord, for the chance we have now to read the Holy Scripture, to study it, and to be taught by your Spirit. But Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts and crush our hearts so that we might respond rightly to the righteous judgment that is due our nation and our world. I pray, God, that you would help us to be men and women who pray in faith, interceding, as Abraham did. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Although the scripture text was read once for us already, look again at Genesis 18, verse number one. Let me read just a few of these verses. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, three men were standing by him and when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, do as you have said. 
So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and bread, uh, butter and milk, and the calf which he had prepared, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Abraham had some unexpected company. And so Abraham demonstrated practical hospitality. The outline or or my observations from this narrative, Abraham demonstrated practical hospitality. Now, I'm not sure that Abraham understood who these three men were at the first. The Bible tells us in verse number one that one of these three men was the Lord or Yahweh. That's the special covenant name for God that is translated capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in our English Bibles. This informs us that one of those men was what we would call a theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. However, in verse number three, you'll notice that Abraham addressed these men by using a different team term. Not Yahweh, but the term Adonai. Translated capital L, then lowercase o-r-d. And Adonai is a a general. It's a generic term of respect for, for any authority. Aaron called his brother Moses Adonai. Jacob called Esau Adonai. David called Saul Adonai. Sarah called her husband Abraham Adonai. So while Abraham may not have fully known that Yahweh had come to him at this point, um, Abraham uh, did, did understand that these were special guests. And Moses, in writing the book of Genesis under the Spirit of God, gives us the understanding that this is Yahweh. The name Yahweh was first revealed in Exodus chapter three to Moses at the burning bush. And Moses, in writing this, gives us that name in verse one. However, Abraham probably used the the term Adonai, the general generic term for, for any authority, whether he was addressing God or not here early on in the narrative. But to whatever degree that Abraham understood who these guests were, he knew that they were special. So in verse number two, he ran and bowed himself to the ground. In verse number six, he hurried and told Sarah to quickly make some, some bread. And then in verse seven, he ran to the herd. That must have been a sight to see. I'm not sure that I've ever seen a a 100-year-old man run or bow himself to the ground or jump into action and demonstrate any level of practical hospitality as Abraham did in this case. But I'm sure that all of us at some time or another have had to scramble when unexpected company arrived at, at our door. Ladies, perhaps your husband has called and said, I'm, I'm bringing the boss home for dinner. We'll be there in 30 minutes. And so you've had to jump into action to prepare for that, that meal. And whether it's cleaning or cooking, proper hospitality takes time. And, and you want to show honor to your guests, whoever they are, by treating them well. I remember as a child growing up, two of the homes, houses that we lived in as a family growing up as a pastor's kid were, were church parsonages. We lived in church-owned homes uh, that were there on the property across the parking lot from the church building where my, past, my father pastored. And it was not uncommon for people to stop by our house unannounced for various reasons because it was convenient. It was right there on the, on the church property next to the church, and we welcomed that. However, if someone was at our door, 
my mother would give my sister and me the, the, the sign, the signal. And what that meant is my sister and I, we were to go to the door and greet our guests and stall for a moment <laughs> while she scrambled to pick up everything that was lying around on the floor. Now, um, I love my mother. She was a good mother, but you need to know this is how it went. If there were things out and about on the kitchen counter or on the kitchen table, those things went into the oven, you see. <laughs> if there were things on the floor or on a chair, those things went into the dryer. And so both the oven and the dryer would, would be filled with all of the clutter that was lying around, and then she would come to the door, we would greet our guests, welcome them into our home, and we would have a, a pleasant time. But, but I wonder what we would do if the Lord were to appear to us as he did to Abraham. And if the Lord were to knock on our door, or if the Lord were to be present among us in this service, we would scramble to hide some things in various places. We would scramble to make ourselves ready and provide that practical hospitality. This is what Abraham did. Let's continue. Look at verse number nine. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of of childbearing. Not only Abraham demonstrated practical hospitality, number two, Abraham received privileged revelation. How privileged Abraham was to have a meal with these heavenly guests. How much more privileged Abraham was to hear again for the fifth time now the revelation that God would work a miracle and provide a son for Abraham through Sarah. But in verse number nine, the men asked a curious question, where is Sarah your wife? Now, We have no doubt that Yahweh knew where Sarah was, just as the Lord knew where Adam and Eve were in the garden when he asked, Adam, where are you? So why the question? Did Abraham's guests not want Sarah to hear what they were going to say, or did Abraham's guests want Sarah to hear what they were going to say? Well, in verse number nine, Sarah is in the tent. Verse number 10, right behind Abraham, close enough to be listening to the conversation. You see it there at the end of verse number 10. In verse 12, we are told of Sarah's reaction to what she overheard in her eavesdropping. Sarah laughed at the possibility of it all. Now, I told you last week from Genesis 17 that I I believe that Abraham's laughter was the laughter of faith. In this case, I believe that Sarah's laughter was the laughter of unbelief. John Stott, Bible commentator, says this, unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to God. 1 John 5, 10 says, he who does not believe God has made him a liar. And to laugh in unbelief, as Sarah did, was to say that God was a liar. But in spite of her laughter of unbelief and her scorn, Sarah may have leaned in a little closer at this this point, hoping to hear all of the craziness that might be said next. And what she heard probably rattled her more than the idea of bearing a son in her old age. Look at verse number 13. Verse 13 Uh, And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the 
appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. It was Donald Gray Barnhouse who, who's offered this. God made water flow from a rock in the wilderness. If the people doubted he could furnish bread. Although he rained down manna from heaven, they questioned whether he could furnish flesh. Is anything too hard for the Lord is one of the great rhetorical questions in the Bible and it deserves a response from everyone who hears it. Let's try it now, he writes. Is anything too hard for the Lord? The answer is no. But the sin of unbelief will lead to further sin. In Sarah's case, her sin of unbelief was followed by the sin of a lie. So in verse 15, Sarah blurts out, I did not laugh. Look at verse number 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And Sarah lied to the Holy One of Israel. Of course, we know of the couple in Acts 5 who lied to the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't live to to tell about it. But the Lord met with Abraham here and privileged Abraham with the revelation that he would have a seed, a son in his old age. But there's more to this revelation Supper is over. The promise has been repeated. The visitors stand to their feet. They prepare to leave in verse number 16. And then it's as if the Lord takes counsel with himself and in discussing inwardly with himself, he, he muses in verse 17, should I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Look with me at verse 16. Then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord, this is Yahweh, said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord Yahweh. And here God is going to disclose to Abraham what he's about to do regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the apocalyptic revelation that I referenced in my introduction. And in the sovereign purpose and plan of God, the Lord here did not appear to Abraham simply to share a meal with Abraham for some practical hospitality. God did not appear to Abraham simply to repeat the covenant promise for the fifth time, but rather the Lord appeared to Abraham that day to reveal his judgment, his righteous judgment against the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that was privileged revelation. How does, as I've written at the top of your notes, how does the man or the woman of God respond to the threats or the revelation of God's righteous judgment. Let's read Abraham's response, verse 23. And Abraham came near and said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose that there were 50 righteous within the city, would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right 
Abraham is challenging Yahweh with this moral dilemma. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the, the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose that there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And we understand the, the negotiation as it will. Abraham as a businessman, he's bartering with God and, and he's working God down from 50 all the way down to 10. And I would observe, number three, Abraham expressed prayerful intercession. As Abraham wrestles with God, fights with God, argues with God to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I've copied this in the back of your notes. It's projected for you there. It was in studying this very same scripture text, Genesis 18, that George Mueller of Bristol, England, claimed to have learned one of the most important secrets of prayer. George Mueller, one of the modern giants of prayer and faith, explained that this very scripture taught him to use argument to plead his case before God. He would remind the Lord that the orphan boys and girls entrusted to his care were not his orphans. They were, they were God's orphans had God not declared himself to be the father to the fatherless. If it was God's work, not Mueller's, it was, was his argument he was but the instrument. If it were God's work, was not God bound to take care of it? Could God suffer his glory to be diminished? Was not a half-believing church and a wholly unbelieving world looking on? Must not God silence the jibing tongue? Must he not silence the scoffer and the skeptic? Thus George Mueller prayed, and thus he received truly astonishing answers from God. And thus Abraham prayed, besieging his heavenly visitor with plea after plea. What would it take to save Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Abraham, why do you care? Well, in his case, Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's family lived there, and it's probable that Lot's family numbered 10. That's where we concluded in in verse 32 and at the end of the chapter. In chapter 19, verse number 8, we know that Lot and his wife had two unmarried daughters. So Lot and his wife Two unmarried daughters, that that equals four. We also know from chapter 19, verse number 14, that Lot had married daughters. If he had three married daughters with their husbands, that would equal six. Four plus six equals 10. Of course, in the end, we know that only four fled Sodom and Gomorrah. That was Lot, his wife, and and two daughters, Lot's wife looking back. But folks, what do we do with this narrative What do we do with this Old Testament account? What is the Bible teaching and what application can we make this morning? And I'd like to charge us in two ways. So moving from observation to application, let me offer this. Number one, number one, we should respond to apocalyptic revelation, that is Bible prophecy about future judgment. Not works of fiction, that you buy in a bookstore or movies, that you, blockbuster movies that you might watch. Apocalyptic revelation from, from, from the Bible. Respond with intercessory prayer and holy conduct. Sometimes we get enamored 
or fascinated by apocalyptic prophecy in the Bible. And it, it charges our imagination to picture how God's judgment is gonna rain down on this earth and the images of the end of the world as we know it are better than science fiction movies. However, the revelation of God's pending judgment shouldn't tickle our intellect. Folks, it should seize our hearts and drive us to pray as Abraham prayed interceding for Sodom. We are well aware of the wickedness in our own culture and in our own country. Many ways, modern America is like Sodom and Gomorrah. And folks, consequently, we deserve the righteous judgment of God upon us as a civilization. What do we do? We can talk about it. We can blog about it. We can make phone calls and send letters and rally for our cause, and perhaps those things are good and helpful. I don't want to discourage you from those things. However, folks, we need to plead with God for his mercy upon us, that God would spare us for the few righteous that remain, a remnant perhaps. It was in 2 Chronicles 7 that God appeared to Solomon, and he he said this, you know it well if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That scripture, that promise is specifically addressed to Israel, not to America, but I think the principle holds true for any group of people, for a family, for a nation. We respond to apocalyptic revelation with intercessory prayer, but we shouldn't just pray. There's a second thing there that I've given you in in that first point of application. We need to respond with holy conduct and I would offer you 2 Peter 3. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and all the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, we respond to apocalyptic revelation that is Bible prophecy about God's righteous judgment that should fall on this earth. In these ways, we respond with intercessory prayer and holy conduct. So first point of application. Secondly, I would offer you this. Number two, we should have a high view of the power of God and the justice of God. The power of God and the justice of God. Now, now don't lose me just yet. These two truths are undergirding all of Genesis 18. The first, the power of God. You still have your Bibles open before you. Look at it in verse number 14. The power of God is found in the question of Yahweh in verse 14. That rhetorical question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? The answer is no, because God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. The second, the, the, the righteous justice of God is, is there in verse 25. Look at verse 25. It's the basis for Abraham's intercession. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? 
So the, the, the first truth rebukes all of our worry and all of our lack of prayer for with God nothing is impossible. Every time we worry about the future, we reject the truth that God is all powerful. Every time we question if he will fulfill his purposes or his promises, we deny his omnipotence. But then the second truth now uh, provides an answer for life's most distressing and, and perplexing problems. The God who is all powerful is also righteous in judgment. And God's infinite power is joined with its infinite purity. And so in righteousness, he executes justice. God will do what is right. Now here's what troubles us. It's not fair that some righteous should be caught in the crossfire of God's judgments. Spare Sodom and Gomorrah for, for the remnant that remains. Spare Western civilization for the remnant that remains. God, it's not fair that your judgment would rain down. God will do what God will do in righteous justice. And so we must respond with a high view of the power of God and the righteous justice of God. And folks, when we are confronted with the threat of God's righteous judgment upon fallen man or a sin-cursed earth, how do we respond? Let's respond as Abraham did because God's righteous judgment is, is not fiction. It's not funny. We should repent and pray and know that God can and will do what is right. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven above, we come to you interceding as Abraham did, pleading with you in prayer that you would spare us as a people. Lord, we think of, of course, our, our own nation. We think of Western civilization. Lord, we think of all of humanity. God, we know that your righteous judgment is due us, but we plead for long suffering for you to restrain your hand as you are calling people to yourself. Lord, I pray that we might be those that intercede on behalf of those that are lost, that we might be those who are confident in your power and in your justice that will accept what you choose to do. Lord, I pray that above all, you'll give us the mind of Jesus Christ as we process these things and we think through current events and in political happenings and cultural trends. Lord, may we have the mind of Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.